Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about St. James's Palace. For this episode, we are taking a look at Pride and Prejudice. And this episode has been requested by a few listeners, so this is for you. The scene in question occurs early on in the novel when we are introduced to the Lucas family. So here is the text. Within a short walk of Longbourn lived a family with whom the Bennets were particularly intimate. Sir William Lucas had been formerly in trade in Meryton, where he had made a tolerable fortune and risen to the honor of knighthood by an address to the king during his mayoralty. Though elated by his rank, it did not render him supercilious. On the contrary, he was all attention to everybody. By nature, inoffensive, friendly, and obliging, his presentation at St. James's had made him courteous. Good old Sir William, jovial guy. Just a jovial mayor about town. St. James's Palace was the residence of kings and queens of England for over 300 years. It was built on land that previously belonged to the Charitable Hospital of St. James, which was a hospital for women with leprosy. Edward Walford in Old and New London, A Narrative of Its History, Its People, and Its Places, published in 1873, wrote that Henry VIII, quote, set his covetous eyes on the place, and seeing that it was fair to view, while the sisters were defenseless, he resolved to possess himself of it. Henry VIII, a nice guy, <laughs> really nice. Walford definitely had some feelings about Henry VIII as well. Um, I love that he gives us that covetous eye. So the palace was built between 1531 to 1536. And much of the original building, which was red brick, is still part of the current structure. The chapel royal, the gatehouse, and some of the turrets of the palace, for example, are from this Tudor construction. When Henry VIII built this palace, it was initially more like his country estate that he visited when he wanted to get away from the official court, which was still at the Palace of Westminster. Then... Henry moved the court and the official royal residences to the Palace of Whitehall in Westminster, which was at one point the largest palace in Europe with over 1,500 rooms. In 1698, however, a fire destroyed the majority of the Palace of Whitehall, and as a result, St. James's Palace became the primary royal residence. According to Hannah Grieg's book, The Beaumont, the destruction of Whitehall had a profound impact on the 18th century British court. She writes, quote, After the palace's accidental destruction, none of the London palaces were large enough to retain full retinues for all members of the royal family and to host the ceremonies of court. In consequence, the court in the 18th century consisted of a constellation of smaller residences dispersed across a wider metropolitan map. 
Ceremony and residence, for instance, were increasingly divided, with drawing rooms and balls routinely held at St. James's, and domestic lodging for the royal family and their attendants provided at Kensington, Windsor, or the Queen's House. So the court's just everywhere in London at this point. Despite the growing distinction between ceremony and residence, until the advent of Queen Victoria's reign in 1837, St. James's Palace functioned as at least a part-time royal residence for the kings and queens of England. Victoria moved the royal residences to Buckingham Palace, which is the current primary royal residence, at least sort of ceremonially speaking. Exactly, yeah. So many houses, so many palaces. So the functions and ceremonies that took place at St. James's Palace that most concern us, and Sir William, to be honest, um, are the knighthood ceremony, the formal presentations to royalty at the king's levee and the queen's drawing rooms, and then the formal royal balls. So this episode is kind of like a three-in-one. We're going to address each of those kind of elements of the Regency Court. And before we get any further into this discussion, we have to acknowledge that there is a lot of nuance and intricacy <laughs> to these kinds of ceremonies and interactions at court. And each new monarch and their court was a little bit different. So it's impossible for us to get all these details hammered out in this kind of episode. They're just, there's so many different minute little details. Yeah. And there's, and there's things like this is what was written down versus like this is what actually happened. So yeah, it's, it's impossible for us to like really nail this down. <laughs> We're doing our best. So, yeah, so we're, we are kind of kind of honing our focus. So we're going to be focusing primarily on the male experience of court for, you know, the, the presentations for women um, and particularly the formal presentations at court for debutantes. That is its own incredibly specific and detailed process. So we plan to address that in a separate future episode. So today we're staying, like I said, close to that experience that's most likely relevant to men like Sir William Lucas. And so we'll start that conversation by looking at Sir William's knighthood, um, and then we'll move on to the presentation at court for someone like Sir William and end with that, that idea of going to a royal ball. To start, let's go back to the passage we read at the top of the episode. Sir William starts out as a man of trade who makes a decent amount of money and who is also elected the mayor of Meryton. As mayor, he gives an address to the king, this address must have really made an impression on King George because he basically <laughs> is like, yeah, that's pretty good. Let's give that guy a knighthood. I like this guy. <laughs> and so it seems really like a weird plot twist or like some kind of like whimsy thing that Austin is putting in here. And she's certainly not above poking fun at royal whims. But apparently George III did occasionally bestow knighthoods for seemingly random things. So, for example, in her notes to the Oxford World's Classics edition of Pride and Prejudice, Fiona Stafford writes, Sir William's knighthood was by no means exceptional. In 1786, Richard Arkwright had been similarly honored after delivering a congratulatory address to George III after his escape from an assassination attempt. So, you know, he's saying, congratulations, King, you're still alive. And the king is like, yes. I like that knighthood. Knighthoods were generally conferred as a reward for some type of great service to the crown, country, etc. But 
delivering a formal speech to the monarch, typically praising them or thanking them for being such a great monarch. Those were also fairly common ways of obtaining a knighthood during this time. At least it wasn't uncommon, we should say. Yeah. So we know that Sir William was granted a non-hereditary knighthood, which means the title would end with him. His sons aren't going to inherit the title, basically. And we know that not necessarily because, if you're wondering, not that Austin says in the text this was a non-hereditary knighthood, but because knighthoods were non-hereditary. So if it was a title that he was going to be able to pass on to his eldest son, he would have needed to have been made a baronet. At the Yeah, yeah. So when Sir William is granted his knighthood, he likely went through a formal ceremony at St. James's in which he knelt on a knighting stool in front of the king, who then laid a sword blade on the knight's right and then left shoulder. In these ceremonies, after being dubbed, the king would give the knight the insignia of the order to which they have been appointed or the badge of a knight bachelor. We don't know what knighthood Sir William received, but it's probably most likely that he was made a knight bachelor, only because that was one of the more common knighthoods in these types of scenarios. So we also know from the passage in Pride and Prejudice that Sir William had his presentation at St. James's. It is possible that Austin's reference to presentation might have embodied the knighthood ceremony, but a presentation at court for gentlemen was not the same thing as a knighting ceremony. It was more like a chance to have a specific introduction to the court and obviously to the monarch. This might happen if you were a young man coming into your inheritance or a title, if you gained distinctions in military service or in the church, or, you know, you gave a really great speech that the king really liked. So presentations, they're not exclusive to titled individuals. And anyone who was in good social standing and who had someone who would vouch for them who had already been to the court could then be presented to the monarch. This also kind of reminded me of the references that you have to have to get into a gentleman's club. Uh, Somebody mm-hmm, has to mm-hmm. also be like, yep. Like at least three people being like, well, we'll vouch for him. He'll be, he's good. He's clubbable. He's clubbable. He's courtable. The formal presentation generally broke down into two different events. The king's levees and the queen's drawing rooms. The king's levee was essentially a reception held by the monarch attended only by gentlemen, in which individuals were individually presented to the king. Charles Lamb describes the ceremony in his work titled, A Book Explaining the Ranks and Dignities of British Society Intended Chiefly for the Instruction of Young Persons. Which is a great title. It's a great title. And I kind of love this since it's kind of like how to understand ranks and dignities for not people who go to court. And so it's like, oh, That therefore makes it a great resource for me Mm -hmm. because I need it broken down like I am a young person. I love it. This is it's sort of like a yeah, it's like a middle grade etiquette guide. Yeah, I love it. Yes. Yeah. So so Lamb writes about this and here's here's what he puts. Gentlemen are all presented first to his majesty at the levee and to her majesty at the following drawing room. They are generally presented by their nearest relation who gives a card with their name and the occasion of their being presented, written upon it, to the lord of the bedchamber in waiting. He names them to the king. When they get up to him in the circle, this is on like the dais that he's on, 
on which they kneel down on one knee and kiss his hand. So that is how a gentleman is presented to the king in this particular setting. Gentlemen could also be presented at the queen's drawing room. This is a similarly formal presentation, and sometimes the king would also attend. In the court of George III and Queen Charlotte, the queen held her drawing rooms on Thursdays, beginning around 2, and the king held his levees on Friday. You have to kind of like schedule like, okay, be presented at the, fri- the Friday and then the following Thursday you could go and be presented to the queen. These formal presentations for gentlemen had a certain amount of exclusivity to them, but Hannah Greek points out that in theory, quote, the court was relatively permeable for formal dress alone granted passage to the most public spaces of the London palaces, such as courtyards and entry rooms on any day of the week. So if you have to, you have to be dressed appropriately to kind of get into the palaces themselves. And so then, you know, we have we have this a certain amount of fluidity about who's who once we get in there. This is like a really great opportunities for like a great farce. We got to oh, yeah. find our costume and then pretend that we <laughs> belong here. Yes. The hijinks that could ensue. As long as you can afford that formal court dress, then you can kind of you can get in there. Have a jaunt at the palace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The formal dress for men is described by Lamb as follows. The court dress for gentlemen is what is commonly called a full-dressed coat without collar or lapels, made of silk, velvet, or cloth, and often richly embroidered in gold, silver, or colored silks. Any naval or military uniform is reckoned a full dress. So yeah, get those specific details done, and that and that's court dress. So as long as you have your court dress on and some kind of reputable connections willing to present you, you could make your bow to the court or at least hang out in the palace corridors and hobnob with the elite. We actually have an, uh, an example of people just kind of like hanging out in the corridors. In Hannah Grieg's book, she points out that Josiah Wedgwood, the man who's responsible for Wedgwood China, which we have an episode on, quote, considered the court's corridors represented a fertile ground for new commissions. Pray put on the best suit of clothes you ever had in your life and take the first opportunity of going to court, Josiah urged his brother John, who was then representing the business in London. So Josiah is basically like, hey, bro, go look posh, hang out at the palace and push the product a little bit. Like make people know that our product is fancy, please. Rub some elbows, talk about the luxury good that is Wedgwood China. Yeah. I appreciate this hustle. Later in Pride and Prejudice, St. James's Palace comes up again when Sir William is talking to Mr. Darcy at a party at Lucas Lodge. Sir William says, Do you often dance at St. James's? Never, sir. Do you not think it would be a proper compliment to the place? It is a compliment which I never pay to any place if I can avoid it. Oh, Darcy. (laughs) Darcy is not into it. He is not into it. No. So what Sir William is referring to here is the royal balls that would occasionally be held at St. James's. Alison Thompson, in her article, aptly titled Dancing at St. James's, describes these dances as follows. Elaborate balls were held to celebrate the annual official nativities of the king and queen in June and January, respectively. The periodic recoveries of the king from illnesses, receptions of foreign nobility, and other important occasions. 
balls at St. James's were not assemblies formed purely for pleasure and entertainment. They were amongst the most formal events that took place at court. Thompson goes on to explain that, quote, For most of Austin's life, the dances performed at court were the minuet and the country dance. Towards the end of the 18th century, cotillions were also performed. The minuet, in particular, is an extremely formal dance, which we also described a bit in our episode on the bath assembly rooms. If someone wished to dance a minuet, they had to send their name a day in advance, so you really have to be prepared, to the Duke of Devonshire, the King's Chamberlain, who called up participants in order of precedence. So this was no kind of like last minute. Right. This is very formal. Yeah. So, so here's a description of what that would have looked like from a foreign dignitary. Count Karl von Kielmansega described the royal ball in 1762 as follows. The place for dancing is divided from the rest of the room by a railing. Inside this space, nobody is admitted except the royal family and suite and those who dance minuets. All the rest of the room is occupied by benches and a gallery runs all round for lookers-on and the band. Only one couple dances the minuet at a time. And as there are usually more ladies than gentlemen, each lady dances only one minuet and every man two. No, thank you. Just no, no, thank you. Can you imagine? There's so much pressure. Everybody's just staring at you. I, mm-mm. no, yeah. no, no, yeah. hard pass. No, thanks. Just you dancing in these big, big court dresses. Um, yeah. Cue the spotlight, you know, just yes. shining down on you. <laughs> wow. This is like a nightmare scenario for me, but okay. These balls were, it would seem from the accounts that we have, generally considered extremely formal, hot, and overcrowded. So that was kind of the consensus amongst people who went to these events. But if you wanted to be in with the in crowd, you attended balls at St. James. So, you know, get with the program. You suffer for those connections. But Sir William, you know, he's got some things to say about it. So (laughs) in Pride and Prejudice, Austin makes it a pretty overt pun about the way that Sir William is kind of talking about court and things like that. Um, So we're just kind of, we're kind of just bring it all back to Austin, all of the things that we've talked about. At the beginning, when she introduces Sir William and the Lucases, she writes that Sir William's presentation at St. James's had made him courteous. So there's the pun in there that the court in courteous is a bit of a fascination for Sir William. And while he is a gregarious and kindly disposed person, his presentation becomes kind of a central part of his personality. He's kind of fawning over the royalty in a way, um, and it has it has more to do with his own prestige than any kind of meaningful engagement with the courts or policies or anything like that. He's just kind of like, I have been to that fancy palace, and I want to make sure that you know it. As we've mentioned, Sir William was likely knighted by George III and is still being nostalgic for his time in that particular court, even though in 1813, when Pride and Prejudice was published, Prinny was the prince regent. And Austin didn't really care for the regent. So, you know, just in case you weren't aware of that. Um, So having someone like Sir William serving as a kind of, you know, regardless of the people in charge, it might be a bit of a jab at people who make the court their whole 
personality, which again, Sir William is definitely That's, doing. That is him. That is him. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, he's he's really like, remember that thing that I did back in high school? I still talk about it 40 years later all the time. It's so true. Oh, that is such a great comparison. Well, and he also like even even in that introduction passage, they talk about how he's like, mm, now that I've been knighted, I can't really still do my business and I need to get a fancy lodge. Yes. And like, I have to I have to live up to this moment at St. James's. And he's so nice that it like it's hard to like read behind that veneer, except for the fact that he's constantly like St. James, peeps. Have you heard of it? Have you heard of that cool place? Because I have been there. <laughs> yeah, the, the prestige of it is very important to Sir William. And he really wants everybody to know about it. So according to Thompson, quote, with his comment that he never dances at St. James's, Mr. Darcy reveals that he is neither an aspirant to fashion nor, like Sir William, a sycophant at the Hanoverian court. Darcy's like, listen, Lucas Lodge could fit inside of Pemberley like 20 times over. I, <laughs> I, I don't care. I just don't care. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that in this in this kind of mention of of Sir William, I think we're also getting a bit of a critique here of the lack of exclusivity in the court. Because Sir William, his knighthood is given to him randomly. So it's it's kind of reminding us that anyone with the right clothing, the right connections can be presented to this court. So it doesn't really mean as much. It's kind of been diluted a little bit. So Austin, I think, is kind of pointing out how fluid and contradictory some of these class distinctions really are. You know, that the court is only important to some people. It's not important to others. Yeah. Well, if you have ever had a chance to visit St. James's Palace, you know, you've got some great pictures of yourself standing in front of it. We would love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, The Thing About Austin. Dot com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for next episode, where we will be talking about Willoughby's pointers with Dr. Stephanie Howard-Smith. Thanks for listening. Bye! Bye.